This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi there, and welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us for another week of Trash Candy. We've been taking a romp on the lighter side of the trashy pile in the last few weeks, but we're back this week with the good stuff. Stacy, mainlining trash. I have the 1980s super spectacular brief, but uninspiring romance and dissolution of romance of uh, actress Robin Givens and boxer Mike Tyson takes a dark turn, won't lie. You have, from across the pond, Andrew Lloyd Webber and his... Trashy divorce from Sarah Brightman, who has the voice of an angel. This is trash associate producer requested. Thank you, mm-hmm. Madam X mystery supporter. From, I know who Madam X is, but absolutely. Madam X didn't want to be. Absolutely. So I gave her a cool name like Madam X. From over on Patreon. So thank you for that, Madam X. I yeah, also know I just who. realized we have not picked a theme song for this episode yet. <laughs> Let's just go with memories. From Cats. Sure. Sure. But okay. I mean, the this like 80s trash-tacular extravaganza that I presented, that definitely falls in the memories camp. So perfect. Memory it is. Before we get to the show, let's pull out the magic mirror and give some big thanks to our Patreon. For sure. Supporters this week who joined us over there. Thank you so much to Portia G, Susan R, Nisa D, Kate K, Kim B, Colleen, Joe P. We have some new super supporters to thank as well. Thanks for joining the Trash Candy Connoisseurs, y'all. Polly B, Colleen and Margaret. Thank you to all of our existing supporters, Mm -hmm. our new supporters. We appreciate y'all so much on Patreon. What do we do over there this week? Lots. Monday's Trashy Tidbits Mm -hmm. per usual. Oh, we wrapped up the end of the Mitfords. I did a Kennedy Kids on Kick Kennedy. (gasps) Much more. I really thought that was going to be light and fun. Kick. No. Her name is Kick. No, it was, uh, it was really sad. We, we talked about Chatsworth we House. We did talk about Chatsworth. Home and- of the Banana King, among others. <laughs> There's always money in the banana stand. We start a new series this coming Tuesday, December 1st. And if I were listening now, I'd hit subscribe now on your Trashy Divorces feed, because there may be a bonus coming for you sometime towards the end of the week. Hint, the series is called American Woman, and it's really cool. <laughs> we did a fun with Dunn as well. Oh, mm-hmm. and you did a Kitchen Confidential. I that did. Was super fun. I did. The foods of England through the ages. Yeah, it was a nice way to celebrate Thanksgiving while taking the focus completely off of the modern United States. Well, in celebrating Thanksgiving, we did our live from mm-hmm. the living room with our trash candy connoisseurs we on did. Thanksgiving. And we got deep into the regional cuisines of North America. It was fascinating. I learned about a thing called gravy flights, and I am 100% in. And chili parlors. Oh, gosh. It was so much fun. So thanks for joining us for another spectacular week of Trashy Divorce Stories, which we will get to now just as soon as we go, go, go. So, Stacey, today you have a trashy divorce that took place, the entire relationship took place 
inside my sophomore year of high school. I mean, that sounds about right. That's about right. Yeah, I think the marriage lasted eight or nine months. It was quick. It was very quick. It is another of our It Came From the 80s stories, which we so love. We get to frolic through the headlines of our childhood. The tabloid garbage of, of yore, as it were. This is the short, youthful, and very disturbing marriage and divorce of actress Robin Givens and the boxer Mike Tyson. Oh, my. It was a public spectacle. It included a sit-down by the couple with Barbara Walters in September of 88 that was really something to behold. Yeah, we were watching that this morning, and whew. And in that classic way that we do, it led to a big public outrage at a victim of domestic violence having the temerity to point out that a prominent man was an out-of-control maniac. So that happened too. Let's get into that. Robin Simone Givens was born on November 27th, 1964. So happy birthday. Happy birthday, Sagittarius Mm -hmm. girl. Mm -hmm. Yes. And was raised in Westchester County in New York. Her parents divorced when she was very young, and she was raised by her mother, Ruth. Ruth was a self-made person, and by the time Robin was, you know, an adult, a person of note, she actually became prominent kind of... We'll see. It It was a quick... It was a quick path. Okay. So by the time Robin was a person of note, her mother owned a corporate consulting firm in Manhattan. Oh, wow. Which is no small thing in the 1980s. Absolutely. Yeah. Robin was a brilliant kid. No lie. She graduated high school years early, and she studied pre-med at Sarah Lawrence beginning at the age of 15. Holy cow. She started college at the age of 15. Like Doogie Howser. Yeah. And I mean... Also not super popular at college. I can imagine. I mean, she's a young black woman at Sarah Lawrence. She is three years younger than the freshman class. She's yeah, one of the youngest. Be yeah. Turtle. You know, and so I will say that former classmates have been dropping unflattering quotes in articles about her ever since. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's not great. Um, apparently, she's a very driven person, which can be quite off-putting. Let's just say that. In her spare time, when she wasn't studying pre-med at Sarah Lawrence, um, she was also acting and modeling. Sure. Why not? Why not? She graduated college at the age of 19. Wow. (laughs) What were you saying about your sophomore year? Right. And planned to attend Harvard Medical School. This situation became embellished to she dropped out of Harvard Medical School to try her hand at acting. Oh. Partly her big breakout role was a show called Head of the Class, and so it Like, I can see how that would have kind of naturally been a cool story to go with that, but it's not technically true. I'm having so many high school flashbacks. (laughs) All right. So this is a gifted, ambitious person, tons of drive, no holding her back. And in 1985, she auditioned for a guest spot on the phenomenally successful Cosby show. Noted creeper Bill Cosby was immediately taken with young Robin Givens, hopefully not in a gross way, and told her to stick with acting for a couple of years. If she wasn't successful by then, he promised that he would get her back into medical school and pay for it. Oh, wow. So that's a, yeah. Her mother, as you can imagine, had some concerns about Robin trying Hollywood instead of Harvard. Oh, well. But, uh, you know, Bill Cosby's seal of approval is not a small thing, and so she was persuaded to allow this to happen. In 1986, Robin landed the career-defining role 
as Darlene Merriman on Head of the Class, which ran for five seasons and kind of bookends this whole sorry mess that we're going to talk about today. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Because again, the whole thing really played out in a year, 18 months, something like that. Before we move on to the other half of this story, let's take a look at how People Magazine's writer Ron Arias described Robin and her pre-Tyson relationships back in May of 1987. You don't have to be a Mensa member to see why casting directors hire Givens. First, she has the kind of looks that must have Whitney Houston or Lisa Bonet darting worried glances into their makeup mirrors. Second, Givens has a sense of self-possession that's very advanced for her years. Neither attribute is new. When she was 16, for example, she went to see Eddie Murphy at the comedy strip in New York. He was signing autographs. When I walked by, I said, do you want my autograph? And he shouted, come back here. She and Murphy, then 20, dated steadily for a year and drifted apart. Quote, he was just starting his film career and had to devote himself to that, she says. But we're still friends. Career conflicts also ended her other serious relationship with slam-dunking super guard Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls. I am not. Oh, my. (laughs) They met a year ago at a North Carolina golf tournament, but broke up in January. Quote, other people weren't the problem, says Givens, who lives in a one-bedroom L.A. apartment. Both distance and the demands of our careers were the problem. Okay, in the same article, she talks about her aversion to playing, like, vixens. I mean, she's super, super beautiful. But, you know, she's like, I just, I want more, like, wholesome black woman heroes on TV. That's awesome. Right. I think we all do. And so she ends this article by saying, if I'm supposed to be so sexy, why don't I have a date? Oh. This was published nine months before she married Mike Tyson. Oh, no. It's like a baby. (laughs) Hell. Yep. Careful what you wish for. Okay. So we are going to put young Robin at the Trashy Divorces Depot, and we're going to take a look at her soon-to-be ex-husband, Michael Gerard Tyson. He was born June 30th, 1966, under the sign of cancer and into extremely tough circumstances. The man that he knew as his father was not the man his mother listed on his birth certificate, and he and his two older siblings, a sister and brother, were raised in deep poverty in 1970s New York. From early childhood, he and his friends engaged in, you know, the alternative economy. And by the time Mike was 13, he had been arrested 38 times. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. I mean, Juvie had some advantages, though, what with meals provided on the regular, and so he was kind of a frequent flyer on that airline. His mother, Lorna Mae Smith, died when he was just 16, by which time a counselor at the juvenile detention center had noticed Mike's fighting skills and had hooked him up with boxing trainer Customato. He had previously trained heavyweight champions Floyd Patterson and Jose Torres. So, like, Mike was, like, 12 or 13 when he met Cuss. Cuss was in his 70s. But this guy, like, believed in Mike Tyson from go. And was just like, no, man, I know how to make you the world heavyweight champion, the youngest world heavyweight champion ever. Let's do this. Mm Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of father figuring as well. You know, there was a lot of mentoring as well as... What a lucky break for Mike Tyson. mm -hmm, As well as training and coaching. As a teenager... Like, all of this went according to plan. Uh, Mike won the gold medal at the 81 and 82 Junior Olympic Games, went professional at the age of 18 and 85. Tragically, Cuss himself would die later that year at the age of 77. Mm. And I think most people would argue that 19-year-old Mike Tyson was not exactly finished cooking in the maturity and emotional development departments. 
Although few 19-year-olds are, in fairness. Well, I mean, if you've graduated college. (laughs) Please continue. Obviously a huge loss for Mike Tyson, but just a year later, in November of 1986, he fulfilled Cus's vision for him and became the youngest heavyweight champion ever. That's incredible. At the age of 20 years and four months. Yes. Wow. He was also becoming a massive celebrity, no doubt boosted by the concurrent rise of televised wrestling, Hulkmania, the Rocky movies were like a big deal. All a big mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. Nintendo released Mike Tyson's Punch Out in 1987, which sold more than a million copies. And this kid, a high school dropout who had spent his childhood robbing and stealing, who had lost his mother at a young age, was suddenly rich, famous and wildly successful in his field. He was traveling the world, winning fights, being photographed, being written about, and we are now approaching the Trashy Divorces Depot. Choo-choo. Okay, so this is how Mike Tyson says he met Robin Givens in his book, Undisputed Truth. Okay. I would argue with the undisputed. (laughs) Twitter would put little little blue (laughs) statements... Um, I I was in England in bed with this British chick and we had the television on in the background. (laughs) I love it. This is why it's in here. Please. (laughs) It just started out quite like that. Gonna gonna back that on up. Okay. (laughs) I was in England in bed with this British chick and we had the television on in the background. They were showing Soul Train and I turned to look at the screen. And there was this beautiful black girl on the show. Who's that girl? I asked the British chick. Oh, God. She didn't know, so I started watching closely, and they said the guest stars were the cast of Head of the Class. So I called my friend in L.A., and he called Robin's agent, and we set up a dinner in L.A. when I got back to the States. I went with my friend Rory Holloway. I should have known something was up when I walked into the restaurant, and Robin was sitting there with her sister, her mother, and her publicist. Oh, my God. Like... Dude, bro, just like I went with my fr- I brought a wingman, but what a you crazy person to bring. I mean, it's her team, right? She brought her people. Yeah. Wow. He was also like, how'd the dinner go? Well, he was nearly two hours late to it. Oh, no. Um, he no. said at that time he felt that like his ego was such that he felt like people should wait for him. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. This so is he made gonna them go great. Uh, yes. Mm hmm. To hear Mike tell it, Robin and her mother were a tag team duo of schemers who were plotting to marry Robin to a famous guy in order to get his money. Robin, you will be surprised to learn, tells the story quite differently, including that her mother actively discouraged her from meeting that boxer (laughs) uh, at the restaurant, and that Mike was definitely not someone that her mother envisioned her daughter being with. Like, the way she describes it, it is like gritted teeth all the way. (laughs) What the heart wants. What the heart wants. Their romance was a whirlwind and Mm. quite tumultuous. Mike says he was cheating on her constantly and she was catching him cheating constantly. So they fought a lot and broke up a lot. And then Mike says that Robin and presumably her mother invented a pregnancy and he agreed to marry her because that was the gentlemanly thing to do. You are kidding. When you get a woman in a family way. No. But it was all part of the con, you see. And Mike Tyson, victim of women... Did not know then that women lie. I mean, this is his wow. undisputed truth is what you're saying. Who asterisk? 
This is not how Robin Givens describes events in her book. Great. How does that chapter go? Grace will lead me home. She describes an engagement scene in a restaurant and says that her mother was resigned to the reality of the engagement and her sister was fully opposed to her marrying Mike. On February 7, 1988, after the NBA All-Star Game in Chicago, they went to see a priest friend of Mike's and were religiously married there on a whim. How long have they known each other? <laughs> Less than a year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They would repeat the process in New York soon after, this time with a marriage license in hand. So, Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Just to make sure there aren't any complications. Sure. Mm-hmm. The pregnancy thing, there oh, is shit. a... There's a People magazine piece from like June of 88 that discusses Robin Givens being rushed to Mount Sinai where she miscarried in May or something. So I don't know. Like he insists that there was no pregnancy. It was certainly reported on at the time. Trip to the hospital. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they are married February in Chicago. I, I don't know. Winter in Chicago is the dream. They've just taken in a basketball <laughs> game and they're feeling frisky. So now things get really, really fucked up, basically. Mike's longtime manager, Jim Jacobs, dies of leukemia about a month later. Oh, no. Apparently, Robin and her mother, again, her mother runs a business. They get pretty interested in the details of Mike's business stuff now that his manager has, he has two managers. So one of the managers has died, and they push him to renegotiate his contract with his other manager, Bill Caton, which results in his cut going from one-third to one-fifth. So Mike Tyson makes more money. So I'm not sure what the point of this, like, and then they're meddling in his business affairs storyline is in here, because... Meddling for profit is really a clever way to get caught. Saving that poor, naive athlete money again. These terrible people. Interesting. Yeah, I... I'm assuming there's more to that. He hired Donald Trump as a consultant (laughs) to help negotiate this thing. It's like... Oh, if you want to talk about Dealmaker, that's your guy. There's a lot going on there. Uh Uh-huh. There there are two car crashing incidents in this brief marriage. So one involves his $180,000 Bentley that was crashed into a parked car while they were fighting after Robin found a bunch of condoms in his pants pocket. Oh, no. When the cops showed up, Mike distracted them by giving them the car. That had just crashed? This was obviously... Oh, my God. It was a $180,000 Bentley. I think you just get that fixed. Okay, so it is against the rules for police to accept vehicles from members of the public during investigations of... What? Whatever? Uh, so the cops were forced to return the $180,000 car. Oh, God, they took it and had to give it back? <laughs> yes, oh God, they did. That's terrible. Um, apparently, the issue here was that um, Mike Tyson doesn't have a driver's license. <laughs> oh, no. He didn't then. He doesn't now. He, I don't know. He may now. But anyway, he so he needed to, like, change the subject big time. Here's a Bentley. Hey, do you want the car? Oh, God. <laughs> Why don't you guys just take it? I'll call a cab. It's cool. It's Manhattan. There are taxis everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. Oh, God. In June, Robin's sister, (laughs) who, again, was apparently not on board with the marriage in the first place, told the press that Mike hits Robin when they argue. Oh, shit. In September, Mike crashed his BMW into a tree, reportedly after telling Robin that he was going to kill himself 
And some of the stories had it that he threatened to kill her too. Oh no. So that's terrible. For whatever reason, it is after all this that they agreed to sit down with Barbara Walters. It's a weird thing to watch. We will link to it in the show notes, of course. Robin uses the phrase life of horror to describe the marriage. And there is good reason to think that that is about right. The interview, though, destroys her in the public mind. The two of them are there together. Barbara Walters is asking, like, it's some awkward questions. Yeah. Yeah. Awkward. Yeah. Yeah, because she's clearly talking to a person who is, like, being abused by her spouse. Trying to signal to the general (laughs) public at large, blinking very quickly. Her palm is up. There are problems here. Yeah. Someone help. And he's and she's saying things like he shakes. He she it's the phrasing it, it's painful to watch. It's terrible. It is uh it is a person working some stuff out. Anyway, a radio station after this interview did a poll of its listeners and found that 90 plus percent of them <gasps> thought that Robin Givens should get nothing if they divorced. <sighs> The prevailing view was that she was laying the groundwork for a divorce. And in fact, she might have been. She's the bad one for saying he's abusing me. Yeah. Yikes. Soon after the interview, Mike flew off the handle in their New Jersey home. Police were called. Robin, her mother, and her sister were cowering in the laundry room while Mike was raging and throwing furniture out the window. Robin fled to Los Angeles, where they had another home, and hired divorce lawyer Marvin Mitchelson. Who has all star trashy divorces, all star lawyer right has there shown up. Her divorce complaint alleges that Mike attacked her after the 2020 broadcast, quote, the latest in a continuous horror story for me. She claims that, quote, Michael has repeatedly hit me, thrown things at me, threatened to kill me and threatened to kill my mother, Ruth Roper, and my sister, Stephanie Givens, and an employee. She continues. My husband, Michael Tyson, has throughout our marriage been violent and physically abusive and prone to unprovoked rages of violence and destruction. The filing asks for an equitable share of money, properties, and other assets. Notably, she does not keep Marvin Mitchelson as her divorce lawyer. She fires him, and she hires Raul Felder of New York. He has been, he's been on our show before, too. Uh, he's repped Rudy Giuliani... Larry Fortensky when he divorced ah, Liz Taylor. Yeah. Alec Wildenstein. Yeah. And David Guest when he divorced Liza Minnelli. Yeah. Spiderwebs. Famous divorce lawyer. Mike Tyson, meanwhile, sat down with his buddies Don King and Donald Trump. Nope. To figure out how to handle this whole divorce thing. <laughs> we need to take a meeting, guys. Judge a man by the company he keeps, right? So... Funds are shifted, bank accounts are closed, and Mike declares that he has been, quote, the hapless victim of intentional fraud and that he's been subjected to, (laughs) quote, extreme cruelty and that Robin has abandoned their New Jersey home. He alleges that Robin has waged a, quote, campaign to publicly humiliate me, strip me of my manhood and dignity and to destroy my credibility as a public figure. This was all in an effort to actually have the marriage itself annulled, in which case there would be no divorce. We just void out the Dirty marriage part. tricks. Dirty tricks. That didn't work. All right. So they were married for eight, nine months before the filing. 
And the divorce would conclude on Valentine's Day in 1989. <laughs> like nearly, yeah, nearly one year to the day since they married, like a, a week extra or something. The scheming Robin Givens story really took hold, and in December 1988, she graced the cover of People magazine beside the bolded headline, Why Does Everyone Hate Me? She was, like, voted the most hated woman in America, which I didn't even realize there was a... incredible. That was a thing you vote for. (laughs) Got to pull for everything. Right? I mean, I... I don't open all my mail, but I just haven't seen that one. (laughs) All right. In the story, she says that people yell at her on the street, stop bothering the champ. No. And Mike had very much been out there pushing the line that she and her mother were trying to steal his money. Robin sued him for libel for that, $125 million. I don't think that went anywhere. And the whole thing was a messy and ugly and really, really bad thing for Robin Givens' public image. There are reports, like, I've seen a few, like, Wikipedia says that maybe she walked with 10 million. I saw a a news article more contemporaneous to that that said 9 million. She has subsequently said she got nothing. I don't actually believe her. I think that's like she dropped out of Harvard. I don't know. Unreliable narrator, let's say. Asterisk. Yeah. In particular... Black America really hated Robin Givens for this whole debacle. And you can really see why. Like, Mike Tyson has an incredible rags-to-riches story of crawling up from the gutter, constant run-ins with the police, juvenile detention centers, but ending up the very best in the world and potentially a great symbol of Black resilience and excellence. The only problem with that is that Mike Tyson really was a dirtbag, and it would take a minute for his own words to show it. Like, I hate to say it, and he may, he's definitely come a long way in life, but like, eek. So a few months after the divorce became final, Jose Torres, a fellow Customato, like former student and former light heavyweight champion, published a book called Fire and Fear, the Inside Story of Mike Tyson, which includes stuff like this. Oh, no. (laughs) Just before the Michael Spinks fight, I asked him to tell me about the best punch he'd ever thrown. A broad smile covered his face, and his answer burst out. Man, I'll never forget that punch. It was when I fought with Robin in Steve's apartment. She really offended me, and I went, bam, he said, throwing a fast backhand into the air to illustrate. She flew backward, hitting every wall in the apartment. Oh, my God. That was the best punch I've ever thrown in my life. She wanted to call the cops from my own telephone. Was she crazy or something? Like, this is literally months, like a few months after the divorce is finalized, and she has been vilified for, you know, the past year. Okay. You know something, Tyson says. I like to hurt women when I make love to them. I like to hear them scream with pain to see them bleed. This is terrible. It gives me pleasure. Torres says that when he gently explained that, quote, men who behave that way probably hate women, Tyson seemed genuinely surprised. As Torres recalls it, Tyson said... You may be right. You're the first person to tell me that. Years later, Mike would joke about hitting Robin during an appearance on Oprah. No. Prompting Oprah to apologize to Robin Givens. Do we even need to get into his subsequent bad acts? There is an early 1990s allegation by Aaron Cosby, the daughter of Bill Cosby, that he sexually assaulted her at his home in 1989, which she told her dad about, and apparently her dad, strangely, was not all that worked up about a man, a man sexually assaulting a woman in his own home. No. As that is what Cosby's do, apparently. Yeah, she says that the result kind of was like her dad called Mike Tyson and said, you need to go into therapy. And so he did. 
Oh, well. Yep. Oh, that's a different way to handle it. It's not a great way. It took several years. Uh, like she really. Okay. So he was then like a few years later charged with rape. He was tried for it. He was convicted mm. of it. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yes, there was. And, and this is what prompted Aaron Cosby to kind of come out with the story. So then there was the 1992 trial that resulted in a six-year prison sentence for a rape that Mike committed in July of 91. He served about three years. And in his telling, and again, you're going to be surprised to hear this, he is the victim, this time of a scheming 18-year-old girl. <laughs> I'm shocked. 18-year-old young woman. So back to the company that we keep thing, his unsuccessful appeal in this case was handled by none other then Alan Dershowitz, no. Jeffrey Epstein fame, oh. among others, a guy whose Wikipedia page has a section called Sex Trafficking Allegations. And for real, if you are someone who finds yourself needing the appellate legal stylings of Alan Dershowitz, and I say this as a non-believer, you need to get right with God. <laughs> also attached to Klaus von Bülow fame. Yes, yes. This is like a whole journey of trashy oh, lawyers in your episode today. <laughs> I do love a trashy lawyer it's story. Just a stroll of trashy lawyers. I love it. All right. So look, <laughs> Robin Givens has continued to work. She has raised two sons. She has married and divorced again. Mike Tyson has gotten sober and reinvented himself as a performance artist. Jamie Foxx is lifting weights to play him in a biopic that's apparently in development now. Oh, my. He's been married, I think, since 2009. Maybe it stuck. Robin says that all is forgiven, but I don't think that that is a mutual view, just given what's in his book. What I do know is that this was really, really trashy and probably deserves about 50 million trash cans which is what Mike's net worth was during their short and ugly marriage. That was beautifully put together. <laughs> that was a terrible it's story. Not a good story. Thank you. You're welcome. And that was our 80s update. Breaking. I have another 80s update on the flip. Oh, cool. Coming back when a, in a mm-hmm. little bit more of a musical formation we will check in with some sponsors back in a minute hey trash pandas when you need a brain break from your day let me recommend the game june's journey for android and iphone it's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder uncovering family secrets and i don't know exposing official corruption all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia, it's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, 
but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alicia, your subject this week gives me memories of cats. We're going to talk about cats. Oh, good. It is technically the Trashy Divorces Depot of the story. Are you going to tell me what it's about at long last? Nope. (laughs) Only T.S. Eliot and a bunch of coked up Uh things happening in... Hello, the late 70s. Hello, Hi. musical theater nerds, and yeah. welcome to our show. This week we have two lovers of the music with a complicated melody between them. Andrew Lloyd Webber, requested by Madam X. Talented guy. He's written 21 musicals. He's won like 45 awards. At one point, dude has four musicals on Broadway at the same time. His output of work, incredible. He has a seat in the House of Lords. He donates a lot to charity. Andrew Lloyd Webber is on his very successful third marriage. They've been going strong since 1991. All of this sounds perfect. We're going to go back to the (laughs) (laughs) marriages before that. So on the other side of this, we have Sarah Brightman, voice of an angel and wife number two, who is so... Much more than just wife number two. We have some backtracking to do. Let's get trashy. Musical theater style. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Born March 22nd, 1948. He's an Aries man, but he is born in the cusp of rebirth. The Pisces Aries cusp that occurs from March 17th to March 23rd. Interestingly, Andrew Lloyd Webber shares a birthday with Stephen Sondheim who was also born on that same day in the cusp of rebirth. Hmm. Is it like a special day for musical theater nerds? Possibly. Andrew is a lad from Kensington. He starts playing piano and violin at three. He's composing by the time he's six. Makes sense. His father is a composer and a director for the London College of Music. His mom is a piano teacher. And for real, dad's talented, but kind of unambitious as a composer. So he turns to academia. Mom is going to pour out all of her unfulfilled ambitions of musical stardom into Andrew and his brother. Andrew's going to head to school with some very inappropriate meetings with his headmaster, where he's like 15 and they're sharing a bottle of claret. It's rather murky. I missed out on the fun schooling. No, it's... 
creeps. It's oh, okay. bad. Yeah. All right. But Andrew's going to follow his dreams of composing. And in 1965, Andrew is going to meet a 20-year-old Tim Rice and musical history, theater history, will be made. This is not the Trashy Theater podcast, even though that would be a super fun podcast. That would just be an endless oh, font. Glitter. We got magic to do. New podcast. Yeah. Okay. So things are going great. It's the late 60s, and Tim and Andrew are making Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, which is going to become, mm-hmm. not become, but next will be Jesus Christ Superstar. Like, it's all awesome. So let's get to 1970 and meet bride number one, Sarah. Number one, Sarah. Sarah Hugel. Oh, because, right, Sarah Brightman was <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, he does one of those, I don't need to learn your name I don't things. need to get new monogram towels. It's fine. That's, that's it. Sarah is 17 when they meet. Andrew is 22 and it's young love. In 1971, when Sarah is 18, finally, she's turned 18, Andrew's 23, they're going to get married. Everything is rosy until the day they take off. Set off for Bath to begin their honeymoon and they're driving on the A4. And Andrew notices that Sarah's crying. I'm quoting Andrew here. The reality of what I'd done truly hit me. I had taken a girl barely 18 straight out of school and propelled her away from her family into a new life that just happened to include being the wife of the composer of the first British musical to premiere on Broadway. Ta-da! Like, I don't even know how to... British listeners, let me know if he would be called a Pratt or a wanker. I'm not sure of the vernacular on this one. I'm using a lot from his memoir that he released on his 70th birthday, just a few years ago, called Unmasked, because whoosh. He is not exactly a self-aware kind of dude. Okay, but did he set up their first meeting while he was in bed with another woman? How about that? No. Okay. But there are parts equally as trashy. Great. So, Andrew, not exactly self-aware. Sarah, one, are on their way. At the age of 25, Andrew owns a Tudor mansion on a Hampshire estate. They have two kids, born in 1977, 1979. Fame, money, fortune, wife, kids, everything's terrific. We'll see you next week for another up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> First, Andrew has an affair with and a. That's it for wholesome families. Family fun. Andrew has an affair with a former teacher from the same excellent boarding school that he went to. Like, fidelity is not a thing he's into. That's, you know. But Andrew's like, oh, is devastated by this affair. I'm and he, so creative. He does all the pleadings and it'll never happen again. And I'm a changed man. And then <laughs> there has to be a cat. A cat? Or T.S. Eliot or cocaine or a cat. It's time to bring in multiple cats. And a Broadway show and Sarah Brightman. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think if you're like within, I don't know, a zip code of uh, McFleetwood, there was probably no cocaine available to you <laughs> in 1981. So Sarah is a Leo baby. She's born August 14th, 1960. She's 13 years Andrew Lloyd Webber's junior. But no matter. There's an audition for a part in this new musical that he's doing called Cats. Which is just people in cat costumes 
knocking things off of other things for two hours. <laughs> that was the first draft. Maybe we'll follow up on our adventure when we went to see cats on Trashy Tidbits this week. Sarah is the oldest of six kids. She is a Hertfordshire girl. She loves to dance. She's into ballet at a young age as a teenager. Sarah is in the top of the pops dancing group. She makes a hit record in 1978. Swear to Jesus. It's called I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper. I lost yeah. my heart to a Starship Trooper. I I, I just, I don't even know. I love to... this podcast. She <laughs> has another uh, song, a second song, which doesn't really hit the charts. So Sarah's a little down and out. She's going to marry her boyfriend, this guy named, no lie, Andrew Graham Stewart, who is managing this German band called Tangerine Dream at the time. There was a lot there. Uh, there was, that, that's, yeah, there was, that was an information rich sentence. Yeah. So here is Sarah Brightman, mm-hmm. married to Andrew her Graham own, Stewart. Her very own Starship Trooper. <laughs> Sarah's 21. She's been married for like two years and the marriage isn't going great. Like they're kind of separating and she's a dancer and a singer and talented. She's got like a three octave range. And there's this meeting with Andrew Lloyd Webber. Who is married to Sarah Hugel, but Andrew's in his London flat, and she comes to audition, and Andrew Lloyd Webber thinks Sarah Brightman has, like, a nice voice, and that's about it. It was how she looked and danced that really gets his attention. But he doesn't really hook on to her amazing voice for, like, another two years. But Sarah Brightman will be cast as Jemima in Cats, and this is probably where it might have should have ended. Everyone with their original Sarah and original Andrew, but alas, the heart wants what the heart wants. Takes two years, but Andrew Lloyd Webber will fall in love, and so does Sarah Brightman, and it's all linked into the art they're making, and he is so into her that he's going to rob a 1911 French tale, just like T.S. Eliot that he took for cats. There's We're going to talk about it in tidbits this week, mm-hmm. and use this legend of the opera uh to craft it for his new love does it involve an early form of face mask <laughs> there's dead bodies it's really exciting it's gonna be fun we're gonna have fun on tibbets this week but nobody's making any secret of their love affair but maybe it's a little bit secret to their spouses so there's a trip that they take to italy in early 1983 this is andrew lloyd weber Sarah wore a white miniskirt that elicited whistles from windows of houses that I swore were uninhabited. (laughs) I was somewhat embarrassed, even more so than I had been by the astonishing white fur coat that she had worn on the plane over. But I love talking music with Sarah, and yes, of course, I love the vicarious looks I got from waiters in our deserted hotel. And of course, I love the sex. (laughs) So by the time they get to Portofino... Andrew says he had no other choice but to propose marriage to her. I mean, even though the two of them are already married, he says, well, in truth, it wasn't so much a proposal as we're both in love. We're both married. What the fuck do we do about it? We decided Sarah would meet my mother and I would meet her parents. And if we survived that test, then I'd break the news to my first Sarah. That's what he calls wife one is his first Sarah. 
they 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 gave him a seat in the House of Lords. They gave this person a seat in the House of Lords. Uh-huh. I realize this is not even like a high crime or misdemeanor among English aristocracy. This is really quite normal what I'm hearing. So they go to his mom, and his mom is surprised. Sarah's parents were a bit nonplussed. Andrew Lloyd Webber's like, we're going through with this thing, but it takes two false starts before he is able to break the news to Sarah one. He says, if someone can be both devastated yet resigned at the same time, that's what Sarah was. There were moments when I wavered. Sarah even suggested that she turned a blind eye and let me lead a double life to keep the marriage intact. But I couldn't lead my life like that. Sarah's like, dude, we've been married 12 years. This child is a teenager. Get it out and come home in a year or two when you've gotten your jollies knocked out. But that's not what Andrew's going to do. He decides it best to release a press statement about their relationship to the Daily Express. <sighs> Quote, How's that go? It wasn't our fault that Sarah and I fell in love. We talked and talked about what we should do about it. In the end, I drew a line down a piece of paper and put on one side the pros and on the other side the cons of us trying to get free to marry. The pros came out only just ahead. But it was from that moment I decided to tell my wife. I'm just trying to remember the names of all the cats. <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles. Mm-hmm. Esmeralda, maybe. Esmeralda's one, yeah. Yeah. I love cats. It's a great story. Rumple Tum Tums or when something. When you don't know what's going on. <laughs> There's no way to know what's going on. No, nobody knows. Nobody's it's ever known what's going on in cats. Absolutely indecipherable. So Andrew will recall that that was a horrible year. He moved out of his home, only saw his kids every third weekend. Both Andrew. <laughs> Dude, you just broke up your marriage. Like, it's supposed to be a bad year. Like, kind of. Like, you did that. That was your choice. I mean, look, once you've fallen in love with someone else and, like, gone to Italy with them and stuff, like... Oh, and the mink, the white fur uh and the miniskirt. What could he do? Okay. What choice did he have? So by March 1984, both Andrew Lloyd Webber and Sarah Brightman are individually divorced from their Sarah, first Sarah, and first first Andrew. Andrew. Hmm. The couple gets secretly married on March 22nd. They don't even tell themselves. The same night is the opening of the Starlight Express. Okay. In London. Holy cats. Where Queen Elizabeth, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, and Princess Diana are coming. Okay. So secret wedding. But now they have the Queen and Prince Philip and... uh, uh, Whoa. And Andrew wants to introduce Sarah Brightman to the queen. It's a big deal, right? But apparently mistresses are not allowed to meet the queen. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. But Sarah is still lined up to meet the queen. So this is when rumors start to get going that they're really married. And there's jubilation throughout the land. This is like a super good policy, though, because it solves the problem of like having your picture taken with Someone undesirable, you know, like... Well, it definitely outs the marriage. Gotcha. And love lasts forever? I mean, I feel like the evidence is not there nope. to back that. it's gonna that. last like six years. Because he's gonna write Phantom of the Opera for her. Sure. And both of them have careers. 
and they decide to wait on kids. And Andrew Lloyd <laughs> Weber says two years into the marriage, there was just no one to come home to. He's a poor baby. So not her starship trooper. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> the couple's working it out as they can. But a few years into it, there are rumors of an affair on her part with the original keyboardist from the Phantom of the Opera. And five years into the marriage that has changed the musical theater world, Andrew Lloyd Webber's going to meet somebody else, too. And there's a lot of publicity coming out about her stepping out. And Andrew Lloyd Webber is not going to be upstaged. Meet Madeline Gurdon. 1989, she's an accomplished equestrian and super into the country life. Pony girl. Pony girl is exactly right. So Andrew Lloyd Webber is getting a bit older. He's got all of his estates and his art and his horses, and he's liking this country squire life. And Madeline Gurdon hangs out with kind of the fancy set. She's got horses and a leather clothesline, and she's friends with Princess Anne, and, like, this is fancy country life. She's also a 27-year-old blonde. How old is he at this point? Sorry. Oh, 1989. He's 41. She's 27. Okay. 41. So, uh, that's actually much better. 27 and 41 is, okay. Because I was like, 48, 23? He's stepping out on Sarah, too. Yeah. Okay. It's goodbye, Sarah, too. Oh, gotcha. Sarah has a new name. Sayonara, Sarah, too. Now, it might have been actually nice for Andrew Lloyd Webber to tell Sarah that she's now Sarah, too, but that's not what happens. Did he make a press release? Because there's an announcement that oh, Andrew God. Lloyd Webber makes. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> God, it's like Rudy Giuliani mm -hmm. follows this guy's career. Along with headlines about mm. his new lady love, Gertie. And Sarah, too, is mm. more than a little embarrassed. Well, Sarah, too, heads down to Dorset to kind of lay low with her parents. You did marry the cat's guy. Far away from London. And she loves it there. Nothing's ever bottled up. If we feel something, we say it. It's wonderful. You always know where you are with Andrew. Sarah doesn't think that's quite on the rocks as it is. One of the couple's close friends reveals that Sarah doesn't quite know where she is with Andrew because here's Sarah like, Oh, it's fine. He'll tell everything's great. And this friend says, I don't think Sarah is expecting the whole thing to be over. From what I understand, there have been lots of problems and she thought Andrew would issue a statement acknowledging that she didn't realize he would publicly humiliate her in the way he did. She's behaving very well, but it's anybody's guess as to what is going on. What was going on was a very fast divorce. Romance is done. Settled by January of 1990. Six years. Over and out. So all told, he spent 18 years with Sarah's? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right, right at two decades with yeah. Sarah. But don't worry, because he's going to marry Gertie. Sure. February of 1991. I mean, he probably felt it was time for a change of name. Got to learn new things as you I'm age. tired of those towels. Let's <laughs> go ahead and get some new ones with I've some had, new monograms. I've had those since my first year of marriage. 
I mean, happy almost 30 years to them, yeah. right? That's that's amazing. Yep. They have three kids. Life is great. They're living the country life. It's great. Sarah Brightman is going to go on to maybe become the most famous voice in the world. Hmm. She holds number one slots in classical and dance. She's like a global star. She'll go on to have a long, like, 10-year relationship. She'll close down two Olympic Games and the ceremonies. She's heavily involved in charities and music worldwide. She's sung with everyone, and she's going to continue to do so. Sarah and Andrew have collaborated again. They're on friendly terms. Sarah Brightman at one point will offer to give him back the settlement money from her divorce, which is six million bucks. And he's like, nah, you earned it. It's six million dollars she's never needed to touch. She said, I've never spent a dime of it. It just sits there. I've offered to give it back. He doesn't want it. So it just sits there. She will talk about the breakup in an interview years later and really does give the media kind of a certain angle in how badly all that went. Sarah Brightman says, the press make their own world around you, their own story. It was a wonderful thing for them to build me up, but then they broke me down. If I think about the six years I was with Andrew, there was always a story about me in the papers. It was an obvious thing, really, to critically have a go at me and my voice. Had there been none of that, though, and I'd gone for auditions for Cats and Phantom of the Opera, I still would have gotten those parts because I was right for those particular roles. That, coupled with the marriage and the money, very much went against me. Also, because I was young, I did a lot of experimenting as I went along. I was, of course, making mistakes. It was a difficult time. She'll go on to say that she lost her sense of personality when she was with him. So this perception that she got slung up as kind of this party-going socialite sort of stung her. She'll say it was such a creative time. Everything was happening very fast. He was writing. I was singing. He was inspired. I was inspired. I didn't really have time to think about it. I didn't have time to read things about it either. I got a sense of things which made me quite nervous at times. But no, we were running all the time then doing things. It was fun, but also a lot of pressure. So it seems like too much pressure. She kind of got the bad rap for it, but she's a legend in the voice of an angel. Seems like they both worked it out. Sarah's not really looking back in her rearview mirror. And Andrew on the farm with the horses probably couldn't see it anyway. It must be nice to just have like a savings account with six mil in it that you'd never need to touch. Like, but hey, should the bottom fall out, that's, I got a fallback plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lucky her. (laughs) Trash cans. I don't know. Like two really talented people on fire with the art and the creation thing. I get it. But Andrew, change out your towels, man. I don't know. It's just such a common story, like older guy taken in by younger beauty, leaving his first wife and kids only to leave the next wife for another, like, I mean, great for you found the one that you wanted to stick with. Sarah Brightman, voice of an angel. (laughs) You're kind of a goddess. It's just classic five-star trash candy. Most awarded to Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I'll fill them all with kitty litter. How's that? For all the cats. Used kitty litter. 
I do respect his talent, but he's kind of crap to his wives. At least the first two. Yeah. I mean, so, it, you know. Kitty litter in your trash cans, man. It, it takes people some time to. But good get musicals. Where going sometimes. I mean, I guess. Really? Ta- <laughs> really need to tell me what Cats is about. No one knows. That's the beauty of Cats. And, uh, you know, it was so prescient of him to write a whole. A whole musical about a guy who can't wear his mask right, and so no one loves him. Is that, is that what that's about? <laughs> Pretty sure. That is what Phantom of the Opera is exactly about. They force him to socially distance because he can't wear his mask right. He failed out as a theater kid, right? <laughs> that is Trashy Divorces for another week, y'all. Thanks for <laughs> tuning in and listening and spending your time with us. We appreciate you. Hope everybody has a fantastic week. Until we talk again, keep your hands clean. Wear your masks, but not like the Phantom does. Not like the Phantom. Like, totally appropriately mask mm-hmm. wearing. Properly masked. And keep your hearts trashy. Yep. Till then. Bye, y'all. Have a good one. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all